Chapter twenty three of Babu Jabberjee, B.A. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Babu Jabberjee, B.A. By F. Anstey. Chapter twenty three. Mr. Jabberjee delivers his statement of defense, and makes his preparations for the North. He allows his patriotic sentiments to get the better of him in a momentary outburst of disloyalty, to which no serious importance need be attached. My fair plaintiff has not suffered the grass of inaction to grow upon her feet, having already issued her statement of claim, by which she alleges that I proposed marriage on a certain date and did subsequently, on divers occasions, treat her, in the presence of sundry witnesses, as an affianced, after which I mizzled into obscurity, and on various pretexts did decline, and do still decline, to fulfil my nuptial contract, by which conduct the plaintiff, being grievously afflicted in mind, body, and estate, claims damages to the doleful tune of one thousand pounds n b i have thought it advisable here and there to translate the legal phraseology into more comprehensible verbiage now such a claim is to milk a ram or vendre la lune avec les dents seeing that i am not a proprietor of even one thousand rupees nevertheless as i have informed mr smartle my progenitor the muktir will bleed to any reasonable extent of costs out of pocket. I have held frequent and lengthy interviews with the said Smartle Esquire, who is of incredible despatch and celerity, though I sometimes regret that I did not procure a solicitor of a more senile and sympathetic disposition. Assuredly, had I done so, such as one would not, after perusing my statement of defence, a most magnificently voluminous document of over fifty folios, crammed and stuffed with satirical hits and side-blows, and pathetic appeals for the bench's indulgence, and replete with familiar quotations from best classical and continental authors. Such a one, I say, would not have split his sides with disrespectful chucklings, thrown my composition into a wasted paper receptacle, and proceeded to knock off a meagre substitute of his own, containing a few dry, bald paragraphs, in the inadequately brief space of under the hour. Such, however, was Mr. Smartle's course, and the sole consolation is that, owing to his unprofessional precipitation, the action was set down for trial previously to the commencement of the long vacation, and my case may come on some time next term and I be put out of my misery at the close of the year. My aforesaid legal adviser, finding that I adhered with the tenacity of bird-slime to my determination to conduct my case in person, did hint in no ambiguous language that it might perhaps be better for me to do the guy next November to my native land, and snip my fingers then from a safe distance at the plaintiff. But it is not my practice to exhibit a white feather, except when prostrated by severe bodily panics, and I am consumed by an ardent impatience to air my fluencies and legal learnedness before the publicity of a London law court. 
Ah, begone, dull care, for I am to dismiss all litigious thoughts till October or November next, and become a dolce far niente, chasing the deer with my heart in the highlands. My volunteering acquaintance, by the way, has declined to lend me his rifle, on the transparent pretense that it was contrary to regulations, and that it was not the bon ton to pursue grouse-birds and the like with so warlike a weapon. So, on young Howard's advice, I made the purchase from a pawnbroker of a lethal instrument, provided with a duplicate bore, so that, should the bird happen by any chance to escape my first barrel, the second will infallibly make him bite the dust. I have also purchased some cartridges of a very pleasing color, a hunting-knife, a shot-belt and pouch, and if I can only procure some inexpensive kind of sporting-hound from the dog's home, I shall be forewarned and forearmed, cap a pied, for the perils and pleasures of the chase. Miss Wee Wee did earnestly advise me, inasmuch as I was about to go amongst the savage hill-tribes of canny Scotians, to previously make myself acquainted with their idioms, and etc., for which purpose she lent me some romances written entirely in Caledonian dialects, also the compositions of the honourable poet Burns. But hoity-toity, after much diligent perusal, I arrived at the conclusion that such works were sealed books to the most intelligent foreigner, unless he is furnished with a good Scotch grammar and dictionary. Ah, mirabile dictu! Though I have made diligent inquiries of various London booksellers, I have found it utterly impossible to obtain such works in England, a haughty and arrogantly dispositioned country more inclined to teach than learn. How many of your boasted British cabinet, supposed to rule our countless millions of so-called Indian subjects, would be capable to sit down and read and translate correctly? a single sentence from the Mahabharat in the original. Not more, I shrewdly suspect, than half a dozen at most. So it is not to be expected that any more interest would be displayed in the language and literature of a country like Scotland, which is notoriously wild and barren, and less densely populated and productive than the most ordinary districts of Bengal. Oh, you pusillanimous highland chiefs and other misters, how long will you tamely submit to such off-handed treatment? Will the day never come when, when whirling sporans and flashing bib-rocks will rise against the alien oppressor, and demand home rule, together with the total abolition of present disdainful British insouciance? When the day dawns, if ever, Please note this piece of private intelligence from an authorized source. Young Bengal will be with you in your struggle for autonomy. If not in body, assuredly in spirit, possibly in both. I say no more, in case I should be accused of trying to stir up seditious feelings. But, as a patriotic babu gentleman, my blood will boil occasionally at instances of stuck-up English self-sufficiency, and the worm in the bud, if nipped too severely, may blossom into a rather formidable serpent. As, for instance, when, in the course of an inoffensive promenade, I am addressed by an underbred street urchin as a blooming blackie, 
and cannot induce a policeman to compel my aggressor to furnish me with his name and address, or that of his parents, or even to offer the most ordinary apology. Enough of these rather bitter reflections, however. I omitted to mention that I am also the proprietor, at the same pawnbroker's where I bought my breeches loader gun, of a very fine second-hand salmon rod, a great bargain and immense value, with which I hope to be able to catch a great quantity of fishes. For there is, according to young Howard, a good fishing in a burn adjoining to the manse. So I follow King Solomon's injunctions, and not spare the rod and spoil the salmons, though if I should happen to spoil my rod, the salmons would inevitably in consequence be spared. This sample of the kind of verbal pleasantries in which, when in exhilarated high spirits, I sometimes facetiously indulge. End of chapter 23